What a glorious opportunity we have this morning to come together as we've already made note of in the announcements as well as the prayer and the songs. It's our hope that those who are ill or sick have, that have made improvements will continue to do so and those that are not able to be with us and are experiencing other difficulties will soon be made better. And what a blessing though that we have to have the sufficiency in health and the adequacy in mind to come forth to come this morning and to participate in a, in a public assembly as this one. As we begin the lesson this morning, you may have noted in the bulletin, as well as in the screen to my left, the title being the danger of supposition. The title itself may appear a bit on the interesting side in which you might wonder what movement or direction we may take to that discussion. Let me preface the discussion just a moment by saying there's been a bit of a computer problem this morning, so if that were to go out on me during the course of the lesson, I, I would beg that you bear with me, for we may not be able to quickly recover that in order to, to complete the lesson. But maybe by the blessing of God, we'll make it through the lesson without a recurrence of that computer difficulty. The danger of supposition. By way of an introduction to that in which you might concede the direction we will take, you might be aware that the whole notion of suppose is a very interesting word. Isn't it a powerful word? You and I are at liberty to suppose almost anything that we might like. For example, you and I might at least hypothetically suppose that the law of gravity were suspended. What would life be like if there were no force you and I call gravity? Well, that's certainly an interesting thing to ponder, I suppose, but the problem is, it, does it meet reality? Does the supposition match that which I, you and I might really experience? Well, the answer is no. Suppose that there were 100 organizations called churches that the God of heaven not only is aware of, but fully sanctions and endorses. Well, notice, that is a free supposition you and I might well choose to make it. Is it truthful? Does the supposition match that which is factually true? One of the opening things about the sermon then that you might note with me, to suppose something does not mean that it's a truthful thing. We're at liberty to suppose anything that we might wish. At this point, might I go ahead and note that the Bible uses the word suppose in a number of interesting cases. We will look at eight of them in just a moment and draw a powerful conclusion. To set our minds for that, consider the following definitions. The word suppose, if we consult a dictionary, means as follows. To assume to be true. Notice I've listed these definitions. To assume to be true for the sake of argument. That's, in essence, the first example we employed. Suppose the law of gravity were suspended. Well, that would be a supposition that we might could then use for a further argument thereafter, having nothing to say about whether we could actually experience that or not. A second definition, to believe or to think. And notice, I have on my own added in parentheses something very valuable. To believe or to think regardless of whether or not that which is thought or believed is truthful or factual. Thirdly, to consider as a possibility. Fourthly, to expect. All of those are usable definitions for the word suppose. Notice that as you and I employ it, we're going to focus carefully on the first two because that's the way in which the Bible uses it. Notice already a, a very serious warning. When you and I consider suppositions, 
Isn't it sometimes the case that they are ill-advised? That is to say, something is supposed as though we think or believe it, but it turns out that it is not factually correct. It is not true. Consider these examples, which I think will illustrate the poorness of some suppositions. Those of us who are parents well understand that when our young son or daughter reaches the point of being able to drive, what anxious moments we may spend for the first few times that they drive. But suppose a parent took this approach, that this young person was able to correctly, proficiently, and appropriately drive, perhaps even to a far distant city and back, having never had any experience or training. Would that be a wise supposition? Probably not. Consider a student at school. Big exam is soon to come. Do you think it a wise supposition that that student will enter into the exam having made no preparation, no study, and yet make a perfect score or at least do well? Not a wise supposition. It seems ill-advised at best. Perhaps another one. What about a coach of a sporting team who, in light of the fact that a game is soon to come, does not choose to practice the team, does not choose to provide any guidance or direction or words of wisdom for them, just supposing that they will win the game. It doesn't seem like a wise supposition. Preparation, coaching, practice, all are recognized as being needful. Some suppositions apparently are not very wise. Could I go ahead and notice how foolish it is in any case, to suppose when it's possible to know. Isn't it always better to know rather than merely to have to suppose something? With those ideas in mind, let us turn to the Word of God and look at eight occasions in which the word suppose is employed in the New Testament. And from them we shall learn of not only a powerful lesson, but one that should be a very lasting and memorable one as well. In Matthew, the 20th chapter... In one of the parables spoken by our Savior, Jesus spoke about the case of a husbandman, that is to say a householder, that went and proceeded to hire various individuals to work in his vineyard. On the first occasion, he went out early in the morning and made arrangements to pay them a penny for the duration of the day's labor. At the third hour, being nine o'clock in the morning, he went out, found others standing idly in the marketplace and made arrangements with them to come and work in his vineyard. He did similar things at not only the sixth hour, but the ninth hour as well. Finally, at the eleventh hour, five in the afternoon, he went also and found others standing idly and made arrangements with them. After the day's work had been completed, finally, at the time of reckoning, the man told his steward, you go and pay in accordance. And interestingly, he said, pay from the last until the first. Well, those that had come latest in the day and worked, they were given a penny. Those that had worked from somewhat in the afternoon on, they also received the same. But interestingly, even those that had worked early in the morning when it came time for them to be paid, they expected, surely we will receive more. And it says they supposed that they would have received more than the penny. We might remember the householder, in fact, gave them the penny that they had originally agreed to, and they were somewhat upset. Now, the rest of that parable teaches us some interesting lessons, but could we pause to notice those workers supposed something? 
Was their supposition correct? No. They supposed that they would have been paid more than the penny that they had originally agreed, but they found that that's what they received. They supposed incorrectly. It was an ill-advised supposition. It wasn't based on fact. They thought, they believed, but it was not as they had thought or believed. In Mark chapter 6, another usage of the word suppose is there made. This time, the apostles were themselves rowing on the Sea of Galilee, seeking to arrive at the other side. Jesus, in the midst of the night, came walking on the water. They spotted this image, but the text says they supposed that he was a ghost or a spirit. They supposed. Now, was it an actual ghost or spirit? No, it wasn't. It was the Son of God, and they came soon to recognize that fact. Yet one more time, they supposed something. Was the supposition correct? Was the supposition based on fact? No, it was an ill-advised supposition. In these two instances, so far we have gained the impression that supposition can be dangerous. In Luke chapter 2, this one is the one that was read before us by Brother Colonel just a moment ago. Jesus was a mere lad of age 12. Joseph and Mary had proceeded to Jerusalem to there observe the Passover, and Jesus, their young son, had come along as well. The time came when the festivities and the celebration and the observance was finished, and Joseph and Mary, together with the caravan, proceeded back to their homeland, to their home city. And the text says in verse 44 that they supposed that Jesus was amongst the number. Was he actually amongst the number? They soon found out that he wasn't. Three days later they came back when they discovered that he wasn't amongst the number and they found him in the temple asking questions of the doctors and even answering their questions. And a rather powerful conversation ensued in which the Savior said, Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? But notice again, Joseph and Mary supposed something. Were they correct? They weren't. It was an ill-advised supposition. In John chapter 20, we notice on this occasion that our Savior had already been crucified. And in fact, his body had been laying in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea together with Nicodemus. Interestingly enough, as Mary had come to the side of the sepulcher, we might remember that Peter and John had ran there, and the events of that marvelous occasion were such that the body was gone. Following that, Mary was weeping and sobbing. She desired to know where the Lord's body had been taken and laid. On one occasion, as she turned around, a man was standing behind her, and she supposed him to be the gardener. Was it the gardener? It was not. Jesus himself was speaking to Mary. She didn't recognize him at the time. She supposed something, but it wasn't true. In four occasions so far, every supposition has been an ill-advised one. Something was thought, something was believed, something was pursued, but it was not correct. Example number five. On the day of Pentecost in Acts the second chapter. On this occasion, might we remember that, the Holy Spirit came upon the twelve apostles and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. As a consequence of that fact, they were able to speak in languages that they had not learned or mastered. And the crowd on that day came to appreciate that something remarkable was occurring. In fact, as Peter stood in verse 14 and addressed the audience, he made this statement in verse 15. 
He made note of the fact that they supposed that they were drunken. That is to say, the crowd supposed that those apostles were inebriated or drunken, intoxicated. Were they intoxicated? Were they drunken with wine, as had been supposed? No. In fact, Peter then directly in verse 16 said, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and quoted Joel 2, 28-32, and made note of the fact this was fulfillment of prophecy over 750 years previous. One more time, a supposition was an ill-advised one. Example number, the next one in our list, number seven. As we look forward to Acts chapter 14, this was the first missionary journey. Might we remember that Paul on that occasion had done a tremendous work in terms of spreading the gospel? When they came to the city of Lystra, those that were opponents to the gospel, those that were Jewish in heritage and background, were so enraged at that which Paul preached that they dragged him out of the city and stoned him. And then the text uses an interesting phrase. They left him supposing that he were dead. Was Paul dead on that occasion? Did they in fact bring to naught the life of none other than the Apostle Paul? No. The next verse says he got up, went right back into the city and proceeded to preach again. What they supposed was not actual truth. These instances in every occasion so far have illustrated the fact that supposition does not equal truth. Supposition does not equate to that which is actually the case. The next example in Acts 16. On the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas had come to the city of Philippi. They had been imprisoned due to the fact that, remember, that they had cast out that spirit of divination from the damsel girl. However, at midnight an earthquake occurred and the stocks were loosened and the doors were opened and the jailer proceeded at once to prepare to take his own life, supposing that the prisoners were escaped. Had the prisoners escaped? No. The supposition of the jailer was improper and incorrect. Paul, in fact, sprang forth and cried out, Do thyself no harm, we are all here. Paul knew the facts of the case. The supposition was improper. Perhaps we might look at one more. The eighth occasion that we shall consider in Acts 27, we might remember that as we study this not many Wednesdays back in our Wednesday evening study, we came to realize that on the voyage to Rome, a shipwreck took place. But just prior to that shipwreck in Acts 27.13, note is made that the sailors supposed that they had arrived at free course. The sailing conditions were proper and right, and the journey would be smooth. Was their supposition correct? It wasn't. Not long after they left shore, the tempestuous wind caught their sails, dragged them out into the ocean, and for the next 14 days they saw neither sky nor sun. You see, a mighty tempest had come their way. Their supposition was ill-advised. Their supposition was not factual. In looking at those instances... Might you summarize by noting some of these following concepts and statements? In each and every one of the eight instances, the supposition was ill-advised. In each and every instance, the supposition was not based on fact. In each and every instance, the supposition was not a wise one to be made. 
first lesson for you and me, and I've tried to emphasize it in capital letters. You and I should appreciate the fact that we should never suppose concerning matters of greatest importance. We must never suppose concerning those matters of fundamental greatest significance because we must know it. To suppose is too dangerous. To suppose could well be ill-advised, and to suppose could lead to eternal ruin. One of the last things on that sheet, be sure and know. Do you suppose that in Luke, the second chapter, that Joseph and Mary came to appreciate the fact they wished they had never supposed? Have you ever wondered, in hindsight, if they had not wished, why didn't we check to make sure Jesus was amongst the number? Why didn't we assure that he was before we left Jerusalem? I'm sure many an anxious moment was spent in the three days by the time they got back. Wondering, how is he doing? Where is he? Has he eaten? Is he well? Has someone taken advantage of him? Is he even still alive? They wouldn't have known. You see, if we use that, Luke's the second chapter, verse 44, as a springboard, maybe you and I can learn more examples about the dangers of supposition. Of course, we will apply this to the religious realm, but might we notice the first lesson? First lesson. In terms of religion, suppositions are needless. They are not essential. They are not necessary. Why might that statement be a fair one to make? What is it that God reveals to us in the Word of God? In Luke chapter 1, verse, verse number 4, as the inspired writer, the inspired penman made ready to pen the epistle, the book we call Luke, he said that thou mightest know the certainty of the things of which thou hast been instructed. The book was written to Theophilus. Luke wrote it in such a way, Theophilus, you, rather than supposing anything, can read this and know the certainty of those things in which you've been instructed. That's an important point, isn't it? In matters of religion, we must never suppose. We must know the answer. Later, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, as that wonderful apostle reached the conclusion of his days, recall with me the statement that he made. Again, this is Paul speaking. He said, as he made reference to the fact, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul, were you supposing had you lived a life supposing that you knew the one in whom you placed your confidence? Had you lived a life supposing that he knew you and that he approved of your life? Not for a moment. Paul said, I know whom I believed. You and I today then had better not suppose. Rather, we must know the one in whom we've placed our confidence and trust and know that he's also considered us approved when we have followed his way appropriately and in faithful obedience. Later in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter began that epistle by saying, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. 
Might we pause and cast the spotlight on verses 3 and 5. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Is there then any need to suppose? If all things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed and are thus given to us, there is no need to suppose. It's all written here. No wonder in verse 5 he said, Add to your virtue knowledge. We must know, not suppose, but know. Maybe we can also see yet another text in 1 John 5, 13. Near the close of that epistle of 1 John, John said, These things are written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye might know that ye have eternal life, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Interestingly, John says that you might know. There is no reason to suppose you and I have eternal life. For you and I can know it, John says, by appropriate comparison of our life with the blessed revelation of Scripture, we can know whether or not we're saved. There's no cause for guesswork, no cause for supposition. For hasn't it been the case in eight previous instances that those who supposed were incorrect? It's too serious a matter to risk eternal life based on a supposition. You, might, you and I must know it. Perhaps one more thing can be stated. In the second place, suppositions can have tragic results. We've seen that already, haven't we? In eight instances, every time those who made suppositions were in fact incorrect. I'd suggest to you that that's not that difficult to understand, is it? You and I would not look forward to flying on an airplane if the engineers had supposed concerning its design. What if they'd supposed that 50,000 pounds was all the cargo that plane would ever hold, and yet upon being loaded it weighed 75,000 pounds? There wouldn't be enough thrust to make it fly. It might make it into the air, but it would crash soon thereafter. What a dangerous supposition. And yet religiously there are those who make just as dangerous and in fact even more dangerous ones than that. For example, consider some of the instances in Scripture that are dangerous suppositions. Have you ever had conversations with others who have made statements like, your faith is just as good as mine. We're all going to the same place. Heaven will be our eternal abode. We're just proceeding by different paths and different routes and different roads to get there. Where is that found in the Bible? And where is that supposition grounded in truth? Paul said there's one faith, Ephesians 4 verse 5. And in Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9 we read, Interestingly, but though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. How many faiths are there? It may be a comforting supposition, but just as we noted earlier, is it true? It's not. So many in our world choose to base their eternal existence on a supposition, as though they have made the supposition and they may well think and believe it to be the case. But in eight times in the Scriptures, those who supposed were wrong. And here, in light of the revelation of the Scripture, being one faith, those who make that supposition today are still incorrect. Or what about those who make suppositions concerning the fact that any church is acceptable. We know that we live in a pluralistic time with a myriad of buildings with various names 
on the outside. And even on Wednesday evenings, we have been studying the origination of these bodies. And no doubt those who are members thereof are sincere, and they are earnest, and they are devoted to the cause for which they've given subscription. But might we ask, it's a supposition. Where in the Bible does one read about a host of bodies, all of which are approved in the sight of heaven? One doesn't. The supposition is ill-advised. The supposition is not based on factual truth because how many bodies are there? Ephesians 4 verse 4. One. And in fact, in terms of all the Bible, in how many different bodies is one baptized? One. 1 Corinthians 12 13. The Lord died for how many bodies? Matthew 16 18. Acts 20 28. One. It may be a comforting supposition to some, but is it correct? No. Oh, how dangerous such a supposition as that would be to ponder the thought of standing before the very Son of God, the one who gave his life's blood to found the body that would be the body of the saved, and yet to be a member of some other body and to say, well, I suppose that it was all right. Can you imagine the Lord to say, that it was dangerous to found your eternal life on a supposition? It's important to know the answer. Or what about in the third case? That faith alone is entirely sufficient for salvation. The vast majority of the Protestant denominational world believe that. Thinking that any other act, regardless what it is, is not a necessary feature of salvation. That faith and belief only is enough. That's a supposition because the Bible doesn't say so. Is it a dangerous supposition? Certainly it is. In John the 12th chapter, verses 41 and 42, we have a clear record about a group of people who believed. Were they approved in the sight of heaven? No. Verse 42 says so. In, John, in James 2, verse 19, we have another listing about a group of beings that believe. Are they saved? Absolutely not. We know that because they're demons. The Bible says the devils believe and tremble, James 2.19. If belief alone were enough to save, why isn't the devil himself going to be saved? For he believes there's a God, he believes there's a Christ, and he knows the character of the church, Ephesians 3, verse, verses 10 and 11. Belief alone is not enough. That supposition is eternally dangerous. In fact, it's eternally fatal. In the fourth place, how many saviors are there? There are some who may rely on Buddha, Confucius, Christ, Mohammed, as well as perhaps a number of others that might be listed. Upon understanding of the fact that that is a supposition, is it true? The Bible says in Acts 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When Peter echoed that refrain in that beautiful text before the authorities, he stood square on the truth revealed from heaven, understanding of the fact there's one Savior. It doesn't matter that men suppose there's another. The supposition is ill-advised. The supposition is, in fact, completely incorrect. Perhaps in the next place, the religious world for centuries has been involved in discussion about baptism. What mode is proper? Is it necessary? When is it to be done? Who are appropriate subjects thereof? And the list goes on and on. 
In fact, many have taken the view that, well, it would be far better to just eliminate the discussion of this altogether. But are we at liberty to do that? We are not. Because the Son of God Himself said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. You and I could certainly say that had He used the word or, perhaps there had been reason to pursue it in that way. But He didn't say or. He said and. And if belief is necessary, then baptism is as well. And on Pentecost, when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, he didn't say or. And in 1 Peter 3.21, when he thus there stated, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. What is it that saves us? Baptism. It is not that we are trying to state those things that are our own suppositions. It is what the Scriptures declare. In fact, in a few weeks, as we look interestingly at the book of Acts in a rather powerful way concerning the conversions, we'll draw an interesting conclusion. Namely, that every single case of conversion in the book of Acts, every one of them, not a single exception, lists baptism. Is that alone not a dramatic and overwhelmingly strong argument? The fact that baptism is essential, necessary to be saved. It is only in that way that a person can become a new creature. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. The last two that I listed perhaps reminds us of some of the things that we encounter so very often. There are songs that we hear from time to time on the radio that speak about the fact, from their perspective, that virtually everyone is going to be welcomed into heaven. That virtually all, regardless of what they've done, how they've believed, how they've pursued their life, well, that may be a comforting supposition, but is it true? Again, the truth is a far different matter, isn't it? Did not Jesus say, Enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because, why, Lord, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth into life and few there be that find it. Those aren't Randy's words, or Eddie's, or Dennis's, or Roger's. Those are the words of the Son of God Himself. Few there be that find it. That supposition then is not only dangerous to think that all or nearly all will be saved, it is in fact again eternally fatal. Maybe finally, what about the essentiality of obedience? Do you and I have to do anything to be saved? Isn't it just by grace and that alone and that God demands nothing of us? God forbid. For wasn't it the case in Hebrews 5, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. Unto who? All them that obey him. There are things that must be obeyed. Actions that must be completed. A lifestyle that must be adopted and followed. And we are not at liberty to suppose that aside from that we'll ever be saved. These things have impressed us with the fact eternity is at stake. In conclusion, I've tried to summarize some of the grand points that we have learned today. May we all impress on our minds the thought that when it comes to religion, we must never, ever base things of an important nature in religion on supposition. We must know those things of which they have been revealed and incorporate them, and that degree of knowledge leads to certainty, not supposition. Furthermore, we have noted 
that we must know of God's revelation, this study of the Scriptures, the appreciation of the truth in it, and perhaps as we close the lesson, the certainty of God's plan of salvation. Though we may often state this in the course of a Bible study or sermon, it is the revelation of heaven. You and I must hear the nature of the revealed will of God. We must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. We must repent of our sins, Luke 13, verse 3. We must confess His name as the Son of God and believe that with all of our heart, Acts 8, 37, Romans 10, verse 10. And we must be baptized for the forgiveness or remission of our sins, Acts 2, 38 as well as several other passages in the New Testament. When we follow that line of action, that's not a supposition. We have no need to suppose, for the Lord says it's that way. Following that, when we live faithfully until death, we understand that a home in heaven is God's promise to us. This morning, in light of my life and yours, have you supposed some things religiously that you shouldn't have? Have you made dangerous and ill-advised suppositions about your life with the Lord and the religion that you have pronounced? If those have been dangerous suppositions, make things right at once. If they've been private, if you've already become a Christian and you've done things in private, go to your Heavenly Father in prayer. Earnestly desire His forgiveness and beg Him to reinstate you to a position of faithfulness. If they've been a public in nature, others are aware of your sinfulness and the type of life you've lived. Come and ask for the prayers of brethren, James 5.16. God has promised to hear the prayers, to forgive you of those things and allow you to again be right with Him. But if you've never become a Christian at the outset, you've never known the joyous goodness of walking hand in hand with Him, understand you're living on thin ice. You're supposing that things are okay when they're not. For you see, your life isn't promised tomorrow. Your life on this earth may not last till then. Don't let that supposition continue as it is. Come to your senses, if you will, and obey the Lord at once. If we could be of any assistance to you in either of these ways, it'd be our privilege to do so even now while together we stand and while we sing.